Ted Bohorquez here with News Talk KZRG. Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary, where I take everything that Steve, Peter, and myself discussed this week on the Morning News Watch, and I summarize it in about 45 minutes or less. We're going to jump right into it this week, as we do every week. The document scandal continues on. As you may or may not know, these last couple of weeks, Joe Biden has continually been finding more and more classified documents in seemingly random places, including old office space on several occasions, his home, his garage with his Corvette, so on and so forth. And pretty much every other day, it seemed like more classified documents were being discovered in Joe Biden's possession. But this week, sort of a curveball in the whole document scandal business happened. Mike Pence. Former vice president, former VP Mike Pence. Turns out he also had classified documents in his home in Indiana. This whole document business might be much more multifaceted than any of us thought. Just this week, former vice president Mike Pence turned over two boxes of records that had classified markings on them to the FBI. Pence said that his lawyers uh, located them, which is a very similar thing that Biden said. So that's a little bit interesting. And according to reports, Pence found the documents about four days before he uh, actually turned them over. So that's also a little interesting. A little bit of speculation was going on this week of, okay, if Pence has them, how many other people have them? Something that, and something that Pence received a lot of criticism for this week is that in previous interviews, he actually said on the record that he did not take any sensitive documents with him. Turns out he had about a dozen of them. So, hmm. He kind of did take them. Now, Pence claims that he inadvertently boxed them. It was a mistake, and he did it unknowingly. Again, that is something that Biden also said. So what's going on here? Apparently, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what classified documents are and what not having sensitive information means, because all these politicians are now coming out of the woodwork, it seems like, saying, I don't have sensitive documents, and all of a sudden they do. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, Vice President Mike Pence, former Vice President Mike Pence, excuse me, um, with classified documents, about a dozen of them. That was a big story this week. So, yeah, it seems like all these politicians are coming out of the woodwork with all these documents. Where are they getting them? Why do they still have them? And who's responsible? Who was supposed to be responsible for recollecting all these documents once they were given to these politicians that once upon a time were allowed to have access to these documents but no longer do? Let's look at the Biden instance here. President Biden had classified documents from when he was in Senate, and he had classified documents from when he was the vice president under Barack Obama. Keep in mind, between 2016 and 2020, Biden was not in politics. He should not have had those documents, and yet he still did. And so people were trying to figure out this week, well, who, why did he have them? Who might have had access to them? And is there any national security threat here? And the big news with the Biden situation is that these classified documents were in his personal home. So then naturally the question is, well, who who was in his home? Who could have seen them? Like, could the maid have been walking by and, you know, oh, what is this? What is this classified file? Let's take a little looky-loo here. If these classified documents are in the White House or in, I don't know, like Fort Knox or something, they're much more secure. But if they're just kind of hanging around Biden's house, who was in Biden's house that might have seen them? Did he have Russian oligarchs coming over, taking a look? Did Hunter Biden have the Chinese come over and take a little look? It's a natural and I think reasonable question. Who is, if these documents were just hanging out in Biden's house, who might have been in Biden's house that might have seen them? I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Well, if you'll remember a few weeks ago, politicians and everyone were demanding to see the visitor logs of who might have had access to the documents, the classified documents, mind you, 
that President Biden was seemingly hoarding for years and years. Now, last week, the DOJ said that they do not keep visitor logs of presidents' personal homes. They said that those visitor logs don't exist. They don't keep track of it because, you know, when he's at his own home, he's a private citizen or whatever, whatever, which also isn't really all that true because he's still the president, whether he's at the White House or at his home. But in any case, a couple weeks ago, they swore up and down. We have no visitor logs. We have no way of keeping track of who was in the home with those classified documents. Well, that's not actually true. It came out this week that visitor logs of those who visited Biden's personal home when he was senator and vice president absolutely do exist. And uh, the DOJ couldn't find them because they were improperly stored. That was their excuse. They said, oh, we have no way of seeing who was in that house. Oh, wait a second. We found it. Found the logs. Sorry. They were improperly stored. Yeah, a likely story, my friend. James Comer is uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and he's in charge of investigating this. And Comer said, given the White House's lack of transparency regarding President Biden's residential visitor logs, the committee seeks information from the Secret Service regarding who had access to his home since serving as vice president. So they were actually able to get these logs from the Secret Service, and those logs are now in the hands of the Oversight Committee as they're reviewing what's going on here. Who was in Biden's home? Who could have had access to these top-secret classified documents, potentially putting this entire nation's national security at risk? These are good questions. And by the way, I think these are really fair questions. You know, this isn't necessarily political. If a Republican like Pence has classified documents that he's hoarding, yeah, we need to investigate. And I, and I think we should investigate Pence's documents as well. And that's something else we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. We need to investigate all of this. We need to get down to the, the brass tacks of who has these documents and why. What's going on here? Where are the threats? Where are the risks with this whole thing? And with Biden, unfortunately, due to the Biden family enterprise, there's a lot more risk when it comes to Biden having documents as opposed to someone like, say, Pence. Something that came out this week that made huge headlines was re-examining some of Hunter Biden's emails, specifically ones that he sent back in 2014 to Ukrainian businessmen that look highly suspicious. And this circles back around to the document thing, I promise. I'm going to walk you through it here. In Biden's laptop from hell, that was a fake story until, oh, wait a second, actually, it's true. Shout out to the mainstream media. One email found in that Biden laptop from hell had the subject line of thoughts after doing some research. This was an email that was sent to a Ukrainian energy sector businessman. Those thoughts that Hunter Biden emailed to Ukrainian businessmen, including predictions of who would be elected as Ukrainian's next president. Keep in mind, this was back in 2014, as well as detailed information or predictions of some of the decentralization that will likely occur in the East, as well as this really well-written piece of insight, quote, the Russians will continue to escalate their destabilization campaign, which could lead to a full-scale takeover of the Eastern region, most critically the Dontask region. The strategic value is to create a land bridge for Russia to Crimea, end quote. Back in 2014, this was before any of that stuff actually happened. This was Hunter Biden's insight after doing some research. Now, those are some pretty complex thoughts to be sending to a Ukrainian businessman, especially for Hunter Biden, who, as he admitted himself in 2014, when his father, Joe Biden, was vice president, Hunter Biden was hooked on drugs. 
He was a drug addict at that time. He admitted that. Good for you, by the way, Hunter Biden, for admitting it. First step to recovery. Congratulations. But where would he have gotten this information? Hunter Biden, that previously had zero experience with geopolitical relations, zero understanding of the socioeconomic status and military and geopolitical status of Ukraine, Russia, Crimea, and the Donbass region. He had no clue. He had no, he had no formal ties himself. So where did he get all of this information? The other strange thing about that email was that that email was about 1,300 words, which was far more detailed and lengthy than any other email, any other piece of writing found on Hunter Biden's laptop. So we have a pretty good idea of Hunter Biden's writing style and this highly detailed email sent to Ukrainian businessmen in the energy sector that is predicting major global events in the region that could directly affect the energy sector. Uh, yeah, he went ahead and wrote all that. Not likely. So then where did he get that information? It's not likely that Hunter wrote it. So then who did and where did he get it from? Well, this is where some of the concern is coming. It's more likely, in my opinion, and this is something we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch. It's more likely, in my opinion, that that was not written by Hunter for Hunter. It's more likely that that was classified information that his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, had in the form of a briefing that Hunter Biden went ahead and took and sold to Ukrainian energy businessmen. That seems to be a more likely story than Hunter Biden reaching those thoughts after, quote, doing some research, end quote, as was written in the subject line of the email. It's more likely, in my opinion, that that's what happened, that that was a classified briefing that belonged to Vice, then Vice President Joe Biden that Hunter got his little hands on and essentially sold to these energy sectors. And so then the question is, well, where's the evidence? Did he actually make money off of this? Well, yeah, he did. Hunter Biden, shortly after that, was put on the board of the was put on the energy board of a major Ukrainian energy company. Hunter Biden was paid one million dollars a year to sit on that board, about eighty four grand a month, eighty four thousand dollars a month to sit on that board. Keep in mind, he's never worked in the energy sector before and he had no prior experience. And now all of a sudden he's on the board being paid eighty four thousand dollars a month to sit on that board. Little suspicious with the timing in terms of when that email was sent. Additionally, after Hunter Biden's father, then Vice President Joe Biden, left the White House after the Obama administration, the second Joe Biden left, Hunter Biden's salary was cut in half. Cut in half. Randomly. Just sure. For, for the heck of it. Hmm. So are they paying Hunter Biden that money because he has great insight on the energy sector of the, the Russian and Slavic states? Or were they paying him to be on that board to have access to Joe Biden, who was in the White House at the time? One seems a little bit more likely than the other, in my opinion. The swamp is deep, my friend. The swamp is deep. Speaking of the swamp, another big story that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, the Trump collusion investigation. The now infamous Trump collusion investigation, years after the 2016 election, years after the 2020 election, finally we're starting to see some of the truth come out. A former top FBI counterintelligence agent who investigated the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia in the 2016 election is now been accused of illegally working for the Russians. I'm going to read that to you again. The former top FBI counterintelligence agent who investigated 
the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia is accused of illegally working for Russia. You got that the second time, right? Dude, the swamp is deep. Charles McGonagall was the man's name, and now he is being charged with money laundering and violating U.S. sanctions law by working directly for Russian oligarchs. Apparently, McGonagall was taking all sorts of bribes from these Russian oligarchs, looking left and right every which way, as well as inseminating disinformation into various campaigns that he was working on. Campaigns, not political campaigns, but campaigns of investigation. McGonagall was arrested this week at the JFK airport. This was the dude that convinced the whole world that Trump was colluding with Russia. And the dude that convinced the world that Trump was the bad guy is the bad guy. I mean, that's hilarious. McGonagall was, uh, like I said, he was arrested at JFK Airport. He was released on a $500,000 bond, but uh, the FBI took away his passport and uh, various forms of identification. So essentially, he can't leave the country. If he does, it will be illegally. He'll be leaving the country illegally. It also came out that McGonagall also helped get a foreign national's daughter a job at the New York Police Department. This this daughter, this girl had no prior experience, no prior knowledge, no real business being in the New York Police Department. But he personally seed to it that she would get hired and immediately put in a relatively high position. And once she got into that relatively high position in the New York Police Department, she then had access to classified information that she otherwise wouldn't have. And what was that classified information being used for? Well, it was being sent back to Russia, essentially. So McGonagall, the guy that accused Trump of working with the Russians, was working with the Russians and was helping insert spies into our federal agencies. Granted, you know, the New York Police Department, not a federal agency, but into our law enforcement agencies. He was actually helping Russia plant spies into this country. MSNBC made zero mention of that, by the way, nor did CNN. This guy got busted planting spies in the United States. That's crazy. In the New York Police Department, they have Russian spies. That's awesome. Good to hear. Speaking of the uh, New York Police Department, New York Police Department actually made a lot of headlines this week, uh, and we discussed them a lot on the Morning News Watch and News Talk KZRG. It came out this week that a New York police car, a cruiser, was found to have an Apple AirTag stuck underneath the hood. And basically what an Apple AirTag is, is it's about the size of a coin, probably about a silver dollar. Uh, It's a little smaller than that. It's probably the size of like a dollar coin. You know, those Sacagawea coins, those things are boss. About the size of that, and it's a tracker, essentially. And that tracker, it's for Apple products. And the reason why it's for Apple products is because that tracker then links up with the Find My Phone app, which is unique to Apple products. I myself actually have AirTags. I have one in my car in case it gets stolen, and also because I park it a lot, and I always forget where I park it. So I just pull out my phone, and then it says where the tracker is. I go, oh, I'm parked on this block. There you go. So the Apple AirTag itself has a lot of civilian and authentically normal and good people use, but apparently some crooks started tagging cop cars to then know where they are. That's a little scary. Apple AirTags are kind of expensive. You know, I bought a four-pack for $100, so about 25 bucks a tag, $25 for every tracking device, essentially. You know, you get a couple gangbangers, and they pull all of their weed and fentanyl money together. You can buy a lot of AirTags, and you could just tag the entire city's worth of cop cars, keep track of where they all are. So the New York Police Department pretty much said and pretty much issued a warning to people across the city and across the nation, to other sheriff's departments and police departments, Hey, check your cruisers. Check your cruisers. See if people are tagging you and stalking you. 
That is really dangerous. Another big New York Police Department story that came out was a New York cop got in trouble for wearing a pro-Trump patch on her uniform. Sergeant Diana Matillo. She got in a lot of trouble because she had a uh, a patch that said, Make Law Enforcement Great Again. With, and then it had like the little Trump, and it said Trump on the end of it, too. She got in trouble. She was suspended for 10 days without pay. Then they went through an internal investigation that found her guilty. And as her punishment, she was stripped of 30 days of paid vacation, which is kind of strange to me. I, you know, I'm not a cop. I don't really understand how that world works in a lot of in a lot of senses. But doesn't that seem like a cruel and unusual punishment? You just get vacation days taken away from you. I mean, that's like what? That's the weirdest punishment I've ever heard. Maybe that's normal. I don't know. Maybe I haven't had enough office jobs to know, but that seemed weird to me. But anyway, Sergeant Martillo is now suing. And at one of the court hearings, a judge asked Sergeant Martillo, do you think that that was inappropriate to wear a Trump patch on your official police uniform? She said no. And the judge said, why, why don't you think it's inappropriate? And she said, if it was an American flag patch, a Dominican Republic flag, if it was an LGBTQIAA plus patch, Black Lives Matter patch, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have said a thing. But because it's Trump all of a sudden, it's really important and it really matters. It's a pretty interesting counter-argument that she made. Now, the official stance of the New York Police Department is that law enforcement should remain completely neutral. They should remain apolitical on all, on all spheres. That is the official stance of the New York Police Department, which, by the way, I agree with 100%. I don't think it was right that she wore this Trump patch. I also don't think it's right if you're wearing the LGBTQIAA plus patch. I also don't think it's right if the police are wearing a Black Lives Matter patch. Those are all political stances. All law enforcement should be 100% apolitical. But Sergeant Matillo said that's not how it works. She said that the former chief of the department got down on his knees holding hands with other protesters at a Black Lives Matter protest. How is that apolitical? I'll tell you, it's not apolitical. So there is a major history of law enforcement, especially in these liberal cities, being political and nothing happens to them. They don't get 30 days of paid vacation stripped away from them. Not at all. But the second she does it because she's a woman and the second she does it because she's a conservative. Now, all of a sudden, it's a big problem. Now, all of a sudden, they take the apolitical issue to heart and very seriously. Hmm. What are you what are you doing over there? New York Police Department being a little bit biased, I think. A little bit not apolitical. A little bit political, if I dare say so. So yeah, basically this conservative cop got in trouble for being a conservative, essentially. And when liberal cops do liberal cop things, nobody bats an eye. And in fact, they're actually praised for it. But, you know, when she wears a Trump patch lawsuit, no paid vacation, you you get put on administrative leave, Black Lives Matter patch, applause. Little biased. Little biased. The coastal states got a lot of love this week on the morning news watching news talk KZRG. California made a number of headlines, most notably the Paul Pelosi footage was finally released. If you remember several months ago, it seems like forever now, uh, an illegal Canadian immigrant broke into Nancy and Paul Pelosi's home in California and assaulted Paul Pelosi, hit him with a hammer. Paul was sent to the hospital. It was a big to do. There's a lot of details that weren't clear. There's a lot of confusion and, frankly, a lot of conspiracy theories. Some of the more notable details that came out from that story when it initially broke, when it initially took place, was a number of things. Number one, 
Paul Pelosi was not wearing pants. <laughs> that was a big part of the story of why was he not wearing pants? What's going on here? Number two, there is a lot of confusion about who opened the door that night. Now, I'm giving you a very brief summary here, but the initial police report said that Paul Pelosi opened the door and they he spoke with police while the assaulter was in the home and they had they shared words together. They had a full conversation. That was the initial police report. Then they changed the story and they said that police showed up, let themselves in and found the assaulter beating Paul Pelosi with the hammer. Two completely different stories here. So what happened? Did Paul Pelosi open the door and have a conversation with police? Or did police let themselves in to find the man assaulting Paul Pelosi? Well, the footage came out, and it turns out both of those stories are true. Paul Pelosi called the police to inform them that a strange man had broken into his home. Now, the man didn't want to touch Paul Pelosi. He didn't care about Paul. He was there to assault Nancy Pelosi, then Speaker of the House. But Nancy Pelosi wasn't home. She was in D.C. This guy seemingly had no business with Paul Pelosi. He didn't care. So Paul was able to call the police, maintain a cool and calm composure the whole time. When police arrived, Paul went to open the door, at which point the assaulter that was in the home tried to stop him. The assaulter had a hammer with him. Paul grabbed the hammer to stop the man from hitting him, at which point there was a small tug of war over the hammer right in front of the front door. Police knock on the door. Paul opens the door. And this is all seen on police body cam footage. Paul opens the door. There's the assaulter. There's Paul Pelosi. Both of them are holding the hammer. The assaulter is holding it as a weapon. Paul Pelosi is holding it to keep it from being used as a weapon. The police said, what is going on here? Paul Pelosi said, this man just came in. The police said, well, is everything all right? At which point, the assaulter ripped the hammer out of Paul's hand and beat him with it. The police then let themselves in, tackled the assaulter to the ground, arrested him. Before that footage was released, there was a lot of talk. Why was Paul Pelosi not wearing pants? Well, it turns out he had just woken up. It was the middle of the night. He was sleeping in his boxers. Hey, come on. Who amongst us hasn't before? I mean, come on. Why was Paul able to maintain a cool and calm composure? Well, he was freaking out. He was able to keep maintain a cool and calm composure to try and de-escalate the situation. Not because he knew the guy. Why did the guy allow Paul Pelosi to call the police? Because he didn't want Paul Pelosi. He didn't care about Paul. He was there for Nancy. A lot of questions were answered this week of that footage. And, you know, this is a, you know, this is a very, very baseline summary here. I, I really highly encourage you go to foxnews.com or go to news.kzrg.com. We have the footage up there as well. Check it out on YouTube. Check it out on Twitter. Please formulate your own opinions on that footage. But it was, but the Paul Pelosi footage was released this week and it answered a lot of questions for a lot of people across the board. Another major headline that California made this week that we discussed on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, Democrat Californian Representative Adam Schiff announced that he is going to be running for U.S. for the U.S. Senate seat that is currently held by Dianne Feinstein of California. Now, Feinstein is the oldest person, <laughs> is the oldest person in U.S. government right now, even older than, uh, than our, our man Sleepy Joe. Feinstein is 89 years old. She's 89, dude. And she's still in the Senate. Yeah, that should never have been allowed. She's 89. Um, she has yet to announce whether or not she's running again. But the fact that she hasn't announced that she isn't running is a little concerning. 89. She's in the Senate. Well, Adam Schiff is now running for her seat. And Ad the reason why this is big news is because if you'll remember, 
Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed Adam Schiff as the lead impeachment manager for Trump's impeachment trial back in 2020. This guy is the scorn is a scorn on the face of the earth for Republicans. And if he takes that seat, we're going to be in a lot of trouble because Adam Schiff is a highly capable individual. He's well spoken. He can get a lot of money in. He can get a lot of a lot of stuff done with the Democrats. This guy's a big fish. He's gunning for Senate. This had a lot of conservatives concerned this week. Speaking of liberal cities, Chicago, some interesting data came out of Chicago. The first 22 days of 2023, compared to the first 22 days of 2022, Chicago's crime rate is up 97%, which basically means crime is almost doubled in Chicago in the first 22 days of the year in comparison to the first 22 days of last year. Yeah, almost doubled. According to, according to the statistics that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, there's been about 100 car thefts a day in the city of Chicago. A day. Robberies are up 32%. Burglaries are up 42%. And ironically, the only thing that went down was the murder rate. 2023 has seen three, three less murders than 2022 did in Chicago. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. I mean, it's terrible, but it's pretty funny. Now, since burglaries and robberies are through the roof in the city of Chicago, uh, a lot of people were asking the mayor of Chicago, Hey, mayor, what's the plan? What are we going to do about this crime? As a citizen of your city, I fear for my life and I'm being robbed. I'm being mugged every like two days. What are we going to do to curb this crime? And uh, Mary Lightfoot's solution to this crime spike is she told people don't carry cash. Hey, if you don't want to be robbed, don't carry cash. Uh, Isn't that blaming the victim a little bit? Hey, if you don't want to be assaulted, don't look so assaultable. What? Don't want to be robbed, don't carry cash? Are you serious? What a joke. Don't carry cash? That's your solution? I mean, that's kind of victim blaming, no? That's putting the responsibility on the victims to change the situation, not the actual perpetrators. That's like if a bunch of men were stalking women and women said, hey, what do we do to stop these men from stalking us? And the solution is don't be so good looking. Men don't stalk uh, unattractive women. If Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's your fault you're being stalked, ladies. What on earth? That is a terrible thing to say. That is awful. They went to the mayor saying, I got robbed. And the mayor said, well, you shouldn't have been carrying cash. So it's your fault. Dude, what? Oh, my God. That was upsetting to me. That that I'll say that was pretty upsetting. But that's Chicago for you. And that's sort of the solution. That That is how these liberal leaders, uh, you know, lead their city. Those are their solutions is they just blame the victims. And they say, well, sucks to be you. You shouldn't have been robbed. Get good. Be better. Have fun. Adios. And then that's their solution. Yeah. True leadership. True leadership happening in Chicago. And that was a little bit of insight of what the liberal leadership was doing this week. Meanwhile, conservative leadership here in Missouri was also was also doing a lot this week, except the conservative leadership was actually doing getting stuff done. For instance, Missouri U.S. Senator Josh Hawley reintroduced a bill that would ban all lawmakers from trading stock. See, now that's actual leadership. That's actually doing stuff as opposed to victim blaming like Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago did. So Holly's bill that would ban all lawmakers from trading stock, he went ahead and named it the Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investments Act, or the Pelosi Act for short, which, by the way, is hilarious. 
This act would prohibit members of Congress and their spouses from holding or trading individual stocks. And if any members of Congress are found in violation to this bill, would have to return all the profits to the American taxpayer. Now, that's getting stuff done. That's actually getting work done, not victim blaming. Josh Hawley said in a statement, quote, For too long, politicians in Washington have taken advantage of the economic system that they write the rules for, turning profits for themselves at the expense of the American people. As members of Congress, both senators and representatives are tasked with providing oversight of the very same companies that they invest in. Yet they continually buy and sell stocks, outperforming the market time and time again. While Wall Street and big tech work hand in hand with these elected officials to enrich each other, it is hardworking Americans who are paying the price. The solution is clear. We must immediately and permanently ban all members of Congress from trading stocks, end quote. That is a call to action if I've ever heard of one. And that is an example of leadership if I've ever heard of one. Shout out to Josh Hawley. Speaking of uh, bills that Republicans and conservatives are pushing, something else that came out this week that we discussed on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG. Republicans are trying to reignite the fight to ban gain of function research, which famously is what brought COVID-19 to the forefront of, you know, the planet. COVID-19 brought to you by gain of function research. That's basically what was happening now, this uh, reignition, this this reignition of the fight is uh, being led by Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas. Shout out to Kansas. The four states also getting stuff done. Marshall's bill that he is promoting would prohibit the federal government from giving funds to any institutions of higher education or other research institutions that are conducting gain of function research. Now, the idea behind this basically is that if you're an institution that wants to do gain-of-function research, well, then you have to make a decision. Either do gain-of-function research or receive federal funds. You can't do both. You can't have it both ways. We'll see how far this bill gets. There wasn't a lot of bipartisan support. The Democrats don't seem to think it's that big of an issue for some strange reason. And the Republicans do, which is a little bit ironic because it was actually President Barack Obama who initially banned the federal government from funding gain-of-function research. Yeah, Obama's the one that put a stop to that. Then-President Donald Trump lifted that ban in 2017. So, you know, I gotta say, make up your mind here, conservatives. Are we pro-gain-of-function research, or are we anti-gain-of-function research? Because right now we're anti. And I gotta, I'll say it, I'm pretty anti myself. But Donald Trump seemed to be pretty pro, because he lifted the ban in 2017. So, what's going on here? Get it under control. That was something else that came out this week. In other news, the Justice Department, along with several other states, are suing Google. Yeah, that lawsuit came out on Tuesday this last week. And the lawsuit alleges that Google has a dominance in digital advertising, which harms competition. It's about time that lawsuit came out. The government alleges that Google's plan to assert dominance has been to neutralize or eliminate Rivals through either acquisitions or forcing advertisers to use its products by making it difficult to use competitors' products. Essentially because Google has a monopoly, they set the rules and they set the terms and conditions across the board, which is a monopoly. Now this anti-suit tru- now this antitrust suit 
alleges that Google is unlawfully monopolizing advertisement online by purposely excluding others. And the crazy thing about this story that came out this week is that some of the states that are taking up this lawsuit against Google's monopoly include California, Virginia, Connecticut, Colorado, New York, Rhode Island. States that are, well, less so Virginia and Connecticut, but California, New York, Colorado, pretty darn liberal states. And as we all know, big tech and liberal government go pretty hand in hand. So if these basins, if these liberal states, if these overtly liberal states are now suing Google, yeah, that's a pretty strong monopoly. I mean, this monopoly has gotten so bad that even the liberal states are like, okay, buddy, let's put the brakes on this bad boy. That's how out of control big tech and Google has gotten that liberal states are suing them over it. That's big trouble. That's some big trouble in little China. But I'll tell you what, good for the liberals, um, good for the Democrats. They don't get a lot right, but when they do, like trying to break up these huge tech giants and trying to push for these antitrust lawsuits and breaking up monopolies, they're getting something right. And I, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll give California and New York and Colorado, I'll give them some credit because, good, I'm glad they're doing that. I agree with them that they should be doing that. So good for you guys. And finally, we had a number of smaller stories this week. One of them was the FBI. The FBI hacked into a famous inter- in- The FBI hacked into famous internet gangster Hives hacks. Ganger. The FBI hacked into a famous internet hacking group called Hive. Hive was this ransomware, basically an internet terrorist group who would hack into people's computers, most notably school systems, hospitals, police stations, all that stuff. They'd hack into their systems and then basically hold their systems for ransom. This is an international group that was that had been doing this for pretty much years the FBI actually hacked into their the FBI actually hacked into the hackers computers and was able to and was able to stop more than 130 million dollars of ransom notes from being collected from about 300 companies and peoples essentially so good for you FBI got some cool work done hacking the hackers not too shabby another small thing Another small thing we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk, KZRG, Gen Z. The statistics are in. According to polls, only 16% of Gen Zers are proud to live in America. Now, I'm a Gen Zer. I can speak on behalf of my people. That sucks. (laughs) I'm proud to live in this country, so I'm not part of this. So, that sucks. I'm proud to live in this country, so I guess I'm part of the 16% that are proud to live in this nation. But, yeah, national pride amongst young people at an all-time low. Gen Zers, only 16% proud to live in America. Millennials, the generation before Gen Zers, 36% of them are proud to live in America. So they're not as bad. But ultimately, American pride is... Pretty much hitting the toilet, unfortunately. 
In 2013, 85% of Americans of Americans said that they were extremely or very proud to live in this nation. And today, 2023, only about 63% of Americans say that they are extremely or very proud to live in this nation. What's going on? Some people argue this week it was the fault of public schools that are teaching hatred via the 1619 Project, saying that anyone who's straight, white, male, and cisgendered is evil and is part of the problem and will never be anything other than, um, you know, part of the problem. Some people are blaming that. Some people this week, there was talk they're blaming foreign governments for essentially poisoning the Internet. Essentially, you know, if you think of the Internet as a well of knowledge, a well of water, if somebody comes by and poisons that water source and we're all drinking from it, we're all going to get pretty sick and die. Now, the Internet is a well of knowledge, and if they are poisoning that well with fake knowledge and all this propaganda that tricks people into hating their nationality and tricks people into being ashamed of being born in the skin color they were born in, that's going to make people fall sick and die. That's a type of poisoning. Some people were blaming that this week. He's uh, saying it's the foreign governments that are that are engaging in strategic and coordinated assaults on American free speech and American ideologies, so on and so forth. Could be that. Who knows? Who knows? I just hope it comes to an end, but it won't unless... But it won't unless we continue to keep on keeping on and keep on calling our senators and congressmen, call the mayor's office and say we don't want these ESG stuff, this, this and that. Protesting does work. Calling your local politicians does work. That's how change happens. And if we keep pushing against this woke indoctrination, I think that we'll see the sunshine once again. But we'll see how that goes. The Ukraine war. Biden this week announced 31 Abrams tanks announced that 31 Abrams tanks are being sent to Ukraine to fight in the war. 31. Yeah, we're going, we're, we're getting in it, boys. We're, we're getting in it. We're no longer just sending money and small munitions. We're sending tanks. This war is escalating. We're, Biden also announced we're sending over another $400 million to Ukraine. So I'm sure that'll align a lot of pockets over there. Good for them. And finally, the last big thing that we discussed this week... On the morning news, watch at News Talk KZRG. The EU, the European Union, greenlit house crickets as a consumer as a consumable bug and a healthy source of protein. As well as uh, they also greenlit worms. <laughs> so that was pretty wild. People were talking about the great re- re- people were talking a lot about the great reset. Basically, uh, this idea of Carl Schwab, you know, the whole Carl Schwab idea, you will own nothing and eat bugs and be happy. Are we heading that way? I sure hope not, but who knows. Anyway, that's pretty much everything we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. Be sure to tune in on Monday. You can catch us at FM 102.9, 105.9, AM 1310, and on your smart speaker. Additionally, you can also tune in on our Facebook page, News Talk KZRG on Facebook. We do a live stream of our Morning News Watch every single morning. You can leave comments. We actually interact live with people on the comment feed. So if you ever want to give us a piece of your mind, we'd love to hear it. We really would. So follow us on Facebook. Check it out. 
And remember, if you ever miss anything on the Morning News Watch, you can always catch it right here on Plot Summary with News Talk KZRG.